Romans chapter 10 again, <clears throat> and then we'll move on into some other places in the Bible that we'll put together our message this morning. Remember last week, we looked at, uh, in Romans chapter 10, in particularly verse 14 and 15, and we, we emphasized really the last part of verse 15. I want to read that portion for you again, and then we'll, <clears throat> we'll look at it here as we move on. It says, verse 14, How then shall they call on him <clears throat> whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Talked about last time, your feet and what they represent in the Bible. Remember I told you that in a doctrinal context, wherever you find the feet, it's always going to be a picture in particular to Jesus' feet in a reference to the second coming of Christ. I told you how that at the second coming in the book of Zechariah and, and uh, many other places in the Bible... When he steps off that horse at the Mount of Olives, his feet touch the ground. The mountain claves asunder, and then he walks in on his feet, and then he walks through the eastern gate and sits down on the throne and becomes king of kings and the lord of lords. And at that point, from that point on, then uh, his feet always represent his reign, uh, him having his feet on the ground of this earth and running things from that aspect. We talked about from an inspirational aspect, it's a picture of your walk with God uh, and how to carry uh, the gospel uh, of peace the Bible talks about in Romans chapter uh, 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 10, verse 15. I told you the two aspects of your feet in a practical sense. We looked at it. I talked about uh, the first last week, uh, your feet at the time of salvation. We went back to Exodus chapter 12. And I showed you the great concept of the gospel according to Exodus. Shows you four things back there in chapter 12 that really uh, deal with when you get saved, where your feet is at. And the Bible talks about that we're to eat it in haste. We talked about the urgency of the ministry. Talked about your loins girt about, uh, loins girt. Talked about your staff in your hand. And then we talked about the shoes on your feet. And I showed you that in this first emphasis about your feet, it's a picture of the day that you got saved. And the day you got saved, there's a, you, you get the Holy Spirit of God, but you had to get an attitude along with that. And that attitude uh, ought to be the attitude that uh, you're going to do with your life now what God wants you to do. Uh, years and years and years ago, uh, even in my early life, I, when a man and a woman got saved, and we talked about this before, they, they understood when they got up off of their knees that their life now needed to change. That doesn't mean that they didn't struggle with things. It didn't mean that they, they didn't have to deal with some issues in their life. We all have issues. But what it meant was is that their attitude was now firmly fixed that in spite of the issues they had to work through, they went a positive direction to go for the Lord Jesus Christ and to go for God. I find it interesting that God wants you to go. You know what? You take the word God. You can't spell God without go. We talked about the gospel of peace. You can't spell gospel without go. God wants you to go and do something for Him after you're saved. And most of the time, when you first get saved, you're not ready to actually go. But this first aspect of your feet has to do with your attitude. Getting your mind set that you're going to do something for God. Your direction now has been changed. That's repentance. You were going one way for the world, now you're going to go another way for God. But the key word is to go and do something for the Lord. 
Now today we're going to look at the second aspect of your feet. And this one deals with after you're saved. This one deals with you and I preparing yourself for the work of God. And you remember I told you a couple of times I made reference to it that in Galatians chapter 4 verse 19 that Paul talks about travailing a second time. And if you're ever going to be in ministry or you're going to work with people or you're going to deal with people, you're going to understand that aspect of true travail. A travail is something that maybe is a burden. A travail is something that you, you struggle, uh, that you want uh, uh, for somebody else that maybe they don't want. And Paul talks about, to the church at uh, Galatia, he talks about the fact that he first travailed for them to be saved. And he had a burden for them to find Christ as their own personal Savior, and they did. And then he travails for them that they don't stay baby Christians. That they travail, that his travail is that they begin to grow and become everything that God wants them to be. And of course, that's, you know, that's the travail of ministry. We travail for people to get saved. We pray for them. We ask God to put the things in their life, good things, bad things, to bring them to Christ. And then after they get saved, we travail that they grow. I know I talk to people all week long that are working with people that are younger Christians. And we converse back and forth and, you know, to keep progress and keep everything on track and see where everything is at. And I don't, I, I, over and over and over again, I see in, in many of you folks that travail that you, you want to do, uh, you want that person to make it. You want them to get the Bible. I've seen you work in marital situations where, uh, you know, a couple was severely struggling. And, you know, we know the answers and we know how easy it is to fix any problem in life. But the real issue is, do you want to fix the problems in life? And we travail over things like that. That's a good thing. But it's also part of, of the ministry. And, uh, you know, I've come to the conclusion that, uh, about some things. And I've, been, you know, and I've told you many, many times, my calling in life, even more so than being a pastor, my call in life from God, my job for God for me, is to take young men and young ladies and train them in the Bible. But not just train them in the Bible. Uh, get them to the point where I, they get educated in the aspect of ministry. You know, there's a difference between training and educating. There really is. Most people don't stop and think about those things. I'm the kind of guy that I'll, I'll, I'll analyze something and look at all the pieces of it so I can better understand how to do it. You see, I can, I can train you in the Bible. I can teach you Bible concepts. I can give you uh, the practical application of things. I can, I can train you in the, in the principles. I can, I can teach you uh, the concepts. But I don't have the ability to educate you. Education is taking the training that I give you and then by using it in ministry itself, letting the principles begin to work in scenarios with people's lives that you begin to see and understand how those principles work. The ministry is in two aspects. The ministry is in a teaching aspect and a training aspect. When we meet on Thursday night and we meet in our Bible basics class, everything that we do, uh, I'm having you, I'm having you uh, do this thesis paper that you're doing. I'm having you do this in such great detail because I want to see if my training for you has paid off, that you have the ability to write it out in a logical format that uh, shows me that you grasp the material. And you could do me the best thesis paper in the world. You really could. You could do it everything in there. And I've watched some of you, the things that you've, you've, you've showed me already. And you've got great material. You're really on track. But you know what? 
That doesn't mean that on a one-on-one situation, you can, you, can, you can teach it. You see, you get educated by taking that material, sitting down with somebody else, and then laying out the Bible. You'll find that the Bible, as you teach it, has a million keys that you'll open up in people's lives. How many times have you started to disciple somebody? And in lesson one in discipleship is the lesson of what really happened the day you got saved. Remember that lesson? How many times have some of you started to disciple some brand new Christian with lesson one and you never even got into lesson one because they wanted to talk about all the other problems in their world? See? You know why that is? Because the Bible opens up things like that. You've got to be prepared for that. You don't ever go into a discipleship thinking, I'm going to teach lesson one. Probably very rarely, first time out of the chute, will you ever teach lesson one. You're going to hear about their grandmother, their dog, their first, second, and third wife. They're going to, you're going to hear everything in the world that went on in their life. And that's what it's designed to do. But I can't teach you that, see? I can train you in the biblical principles, but your education comes when you sit down with somebody. You know, you can go you take a doctor, somebody that wants to be a doctor. I think the doctors that go to medical school, they're incredible. I could never do it. And the, the discipline they must have to have to go through how, how, how many years of, of medical training. But you know what? They can pass number one in their class. And they can have everything in anatomy down and everything and all the classes they have to go through. But they're not a real certified doctor. Till all by themselves, they open up that first patient with an operation and have to do it, not by looking at pictures in a book. That's when all the training now becomes part of their education process. Anything, we, we, when you learn the basic principles of the Bible, using those basic principles then makes you better. You can take driver's training. And how I, you can, we've all been behind people in driver's training. you got the little light specs. Stay 600 feet behind because we've got a driver trainer here, you know. And uh, you can go driver's training and you can do all of the things and all of the things and go through all the books, watch all the videos, see all the beautiful wrecks, learn all the things, drive around to, to, uh, to do all that you, you had to do. But you know what? You're not really become a driver until you're by yourself in that car. You put the key in, you put it in gear, and you drive off by yourself. You can be a pilot, go to flight school, and you get in a flight instructor, and he takes you everywhere and shows you everything. You have ground school, then you have flight training, and then, but you're really not a pilot until you get in that plane all by yourself. To me, that'd be the most frightening thing in the world. I don't care how good I was trained to thinking that I'm going to go up in an airplane now where I'm going to be 2,000 feet in the air with no ladder, <laughs> and if something happens, I have nobody there to tell me what to do, see? In other words, you can have all the training in the world, folks, but until you start to use the training you have, that's when you begin to get your education. I can, I've seen it in, in, in people's lives all my life. I see it in this church. Many of, you who, uh, many of you who have come to the point where you have, you know, really have a deeper across-the-board understanding of principles in the Bible, uh, you all get the same training. I don't teach two different Bible studies every Thursday night and have one set over here and one set over here. Everybody gets the same training. You get the same messages on Sunday morning. You come over to me on one-on-one, you get the same stuff then. I mean, the training's all the same. What makes the difference between somebody who develops himself and educates himself in how to deal with people versus somebody who still just stumbles around and, and doesn't know how to do it? The difference is you got educated. You took what you were trained and then you educated yourself by using it.
just the way that it works. Just the way that it works. The core of this church, as far as I'm concerned, as long as I'm pastor, the core of this church is and always will be the Bible and the, pre- the Bible teaching and the Bible preaching ministry. I need people who can disciple people. I'm always looking for people who have the ability to teach the Bible. That's why I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, I gave you, the first time we had the Bible basics, I gave you a test, and uh, that test was basically, uh, you know, fill in the blank, so to speak. The second one was a little more creative, and you had to come up and fill in the charts. And uh, this one now is totally radically different. This one brings it about completely where now you have to show me that you understand the material. You have a grasp of it. Why? Because I want to see who spends the time. I watch, I hear stories about many of you. How you agonize over the test. How you, you worry about this and you worry about that. And, uh, and, and you know, and I kind of chuckle a little bit because that's, uh, I, I like that. And then you have the others that the class is uh, uh, Saturday morning and they'll start Friday night to try to put the thing together. That's just the way people are. I'm looking for those who agonize. And I'll take that agonizing over making sure you have the Bible right and, and perfect that into an agonizing over the understanding of the people in the ministry and the concepts that you have to you grow through. But it's just that, just that simple. Last week I told you that every Christian should own three pairs of shoes spiritually. Remember we talked about it? I told you, we talked about this one last week, but we're going to talk about the other two today. I told you that every Christian needs to have a pair of running shoes. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Paul says that you and I are in a race. We're in a race. We're in a race against time. We're in a race against Christ coming back. We're in a race. There's an urgency. And we talked about understanding the urgency of the time that we live in. And the first pair of shoes you need to have is a pair, a good old pair of running shoes because you're in a race. Then I told you the second pair of shoes you need to have, or really boots, would be combat boots because you're going to be in a warfare. Then I told you the third pair of shoes you need to have is a pair of work shoes or work boots because there's the work in the ministry. And when we look at this second lesson today, like I said, in our first lesson we saw uh, what happens when you put the shoes on your feet. You just got saved. Now we're going to look in the second aspect. We'll learn how to wear and use those shoes these last two, in preparation for the ministry. Now, our text this morning is going to be the incredible book of Ephesians. And I want you to turn now from the book of Romans chapter 10 and turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. Now, the book of Ephesians is vitally important to the young Christian. It's a book where basically, for those of you that it's new to, Paul begins to explain the body mystery that was talked about in Romans chapter 16, verse 15. In fact, it's one of the seven mysteries in the Bible that are given to the church. I tell you all the time, you know, that <clears throat> I don't care if it's a passage of Scripture. I don't care if it's a, a verse. I don't care if it's a chapter. I don't care if it's a book of the Bible. The first thing you have to determine, and I, you hear me say it all the time, is the context. And uh, <clears throat> this book also is uh, an incredible book that you have to get the context. The book breaks down into two segments. And without this understanding of these two segments, as far as the context, you'll never get it straightened up. In fact, you'll wind up getting messed up. The book of Ephesians is a great book for, for, uh, for uh, the hyper-dispensationalist and the hyper-Calvinist and then your garden-variety Calvinist because it's such a deep spiritual book. 
The book of Ephesians is probably uh, in the New Testament what the Song of Solomon is in the Old Testament. It's a very deep book. And uh, there's, you've got to have the context. And of course, the whole book breaks down around the two fundamental aspects that we talked about many, many times in here. Uh, and that is the concept of your standing and your state. One of the greatest fundamental studies you'll ever learn about the Bible and God and yourself is understanding the doctrine of standing and state. The fact that you're standing once you get saved in Christ Jesus is sinless perfection. The doctrine of your state is, deals with the physical aspect of it, and that is your daily walk with God. You see, one is physical and one is spiritual. And you're going to find that your standing is spiritual. That's in Christ. And therefore, the key to the book of Ephesians is in Christ. Your state is where you're at in your own personal walk with God today. And that's a physical aspect, you living in this world. And standing in state is basically the whole thing that the uh, uh, book of Ephesians is talking about. There's two aspects of the church. And nobody teaches this anymore. <clears throat> you go up and ask the, the two pastor, any pastor, just pick one out. Ask him what the two concepts of the churches is. He have, wouldn't have a clue. There's a church triumphant, and then there's a church militant. There's a church triumphant, and then there's a church militant. The church triumphant lines up with your standing in Christ Jesus. You know what the church triumphant is? That's the church, the spiritual church that you were born into, the body of Christ, the day you got saved. You know what that standing and that church triumphant means? It means, whether you know it or not, the victory and the battle's already won. You already have the victory this morning, even though you're still down here faced with all this stuff and may have several years before the rapture takes place. I got news for you. The victory's already been won. The war's been won. You have the victory in Christ Jesus, and that is your, that is your standing in Christ, and that is the church triumphant. Now, the church, the other aspect is the church militant. Now, that's not some radical militant group like the Aryan Brotherhood or, you know, the Missouri Militia or something like that. No, no. The church militant is the fact that we're going to talk about today. It's the fact that after God saved you and gave you the victory, He left you down here in a New Testament local church, the church militant, to carry on the ministry. Notice the word militant because you're supposed to be a soldier. Jesus Christ is the captain of your salvation. The Bible says that, uh, Jesus, that you and I uh, should be a good soldier for Jesus Christ. So when you begin to look at the book of Ephesians, here's how it works. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 deal with the spiritual church or the church triumphant. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 deal with the physical church, and that'll be the church militant. One of them deals with the victory you already have in Christ Jesus and your standing. The other one deals with the fact that we are in a war down here and we got to hold out and fight the battle even though the victory's been won in the church militant. One time they burned an old, they, they burned a, they burned an old uh, saint at the, at, the, uh, at, the, uh, at the stake and they come up and the old inquisitioner shook his finger in his face and said, we're going to separate you from the church triumphant. And the old boy looked him in the face and he said, you, he said, you're going to separate you from the church is what he said meaning the Catholic Church, you know. And the guy said, you can, search, you can separate me from the church militant see, by killing him, but you'll never separate me from the church triumphant. Amen. And that's the concept. That's the concept. And that's what the book of Ephesians is built around. 
Now, after giving you that little basic outline, and you want to put that, if you don't have that, you need to put that in your Bible someplace in Ephesians. It'll help you out, especially if you're going to read it, break it down in those two passages. Now, we want to focus today on the physical aspect, the church militant. We want to talk about dealing with your feet in preparation of the ministry. Once you're saved, you're standing in Christ Jesus as sinless perfection, but you've got to stay down here, and you've got to fight this thing out, and you've got to wage this warfare. Now, I want to read today Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. This is where we're going to start. Now, here's what he says. <clears throat> Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, <clears throat> but against principalities, against powers, against uh, the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having all done to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith they shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation on the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now, Father, we thank Thee and praise Thee for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You, Lord, today for the fact that You've given us uh, the Word of God, that we can come as Your people, and we can, we can look therein, and we can find those things that we need to be found faithful in everything that God has for us. And I thank You for this church. I thank You for its stand on the Word of God. I thank you for the host of men and women who have dedicated their lives to this work, that they recognize the church triumphant and the church militant. And they're part of this local New Testament body as a militant group that is going to stand and wage the spiritual warfare that we have, that we have to face today. And Lord, we do love you, and we thank you and praise you. Pray you'll bless us today. Help us to encourage those that are in the battle. Help us to challenge those that need to be in the battle. But Lord, you be found faithful and please, Lord, in giving us all that we need today. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I've always enjoyed uh, this passage of Scripture. I've always been somewhat of a military mind myself. And, 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 and I realized many, many years ago that, uh, that if you wanted to study Christianity the way it should be, uh, and I learned it really by watching and reading this passage here. Have you ever noticed this? This note, yeah, just like... Exodus chapter 12, this passage is an incredible passage. Now, this is one of Paul's prison epistles. What does that mean? It means he's in the huskow. He's in jail. And he's being, he's being guarded by Roman soldiers. They call them uh, centurions or quartians. And he's being, he's being guarded. He's in a Roman prison, and he's being guarded by Roman soldiers. He lives in a world that is dominated by the Roman Empire. If you know Daniel chapter, uh, uh, Daniel chapter 2, when you come through the Gentile nations, as he lays it out, which follows the satanic line all the way through, you'll know that by the time you get to uh, uh, the Greek Empire, which uh, is around uh, 200, 300 uh, B.C., uh, somewhere in there, uh, that uh, Rome defeats the Greeks at about 100 B.C., uh, thereabouts, and then Rome becomes the world power. In, in this period of time here, which is about 60 A.D., Rome is at its zenith. Rome is at its pinnacle of, of world domination. If he's in Asia Minor, 
And yet Asia Minor feels the footprint of Rome everywhere. If you would go to Europe during, uh, in this period of time, into France, into Germany, into England, if you would go just about any place in Europe during this period of time, you would find that all, the, all those nations, all of that land is under the domination of, of, of the Roman Empire. They're at their pinnacle. Now the Roman Empire was carried on its feet by the Roman army. And I don't think there probably was a greater army anywhere on the face of the planet at any time in history than the Roman army. Right up the road here, we got a place called Fort Leavenworth. Fort Leavenworth has a war college. And all the generals of the United States and many of the generals from foreign nations <coughs> go to that war college. I belong to a military club, and I go down once a month, and, many, and most of the times all of the visiting generals are there. And I get a chance to meet with them and talk with them. And, and many of the uh, American generals are there. And I get to be able to talk. We talk back and forth and converse. And I've had some great conversations with them. You realize that at Fort Leavenworth today in the War College, when they study tactics and strategy, they still follow and teach some of the basic tactics that were used by the Roman Empire? They, they, they carried the Roman world everywhere it went. They were the greatest fighting force the world has ever seen. And you know what? It always bothered me that when Paul wanted to give you and me a picture of what your life and my life should be like, why in the world did he pick a pagan, godless, forsaken, uh, demon-possessed, uh, satanic line uh, of, of the Roman Empire? Why did he pick the people who were demon-possessed, demon-crazed under the, Pharaoh, under the Nero's and under the Caesar's, that their whole world, they live for one thing, and that is to wipe out Bible Christianity? Why did he pick the very people that had put him in jail? I'll tell you why. He does it the same way that I look at stories of great valor. Stories of men and women who have put on their life on the line for their military. <clears throat> he does it the same way that I told you many times about the 82nd Airborne, 505th Rapid Deployment, and 101st Airborne, and all of those elite groups like the SEALs and the Special Forces that can, can drop in any place, any time. Most of those men are unsaved. Most of those men are going to die and go to hell. But most of those men you would never want to meet one-on-one -on -one in an alley someplace. He's looking at those Roman soldiers like I look at the elite of, the, of this world. And he's saying to himself, if I could get Christians to be as dedicated and as sold out to the ministry as the pagan Roman soldiers are to their government, I could turn this world around to Christ. And how many times have I said it? If I could get most of you to take this thing seriously, if I could get most of you to see and understand the urgency, but then understand the warfare and realize, and realize that, that there's eternal consequences to this. There's an end to this. And someday we're going to have to face in the reality of what God called you to do. And then also the reality that you did nothing. I know what he's thinking. He's thinking the same thing I think. He's looking at the armament of a first century Roman soldier. And he's equating it in a spiritual sense to the things in the Bible. And saying to himself, if I could get God's people to be as disciplined and as structured and as trained that they carried the Roman Empire everywhere it went by the army on their feet. If I could get God's people to carry the gospel on their feet, we'd win the world to Christ. That's what he's thinking. That's exactly what he's thinking. Now look at verses 10 and 11 and 12 here. These are very important. 
He says, Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For he wrestle not, and this is what we want to look at, for he wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, let me just say this. There's a difference between where we're at now and where Paul was at than where they were in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they fought literal battles with literal swords. They went up against literal armies. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but I could take the Bible and I could show you how uh, at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it talked about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I could take you in the Old Testament and show you how that super serpent seed physically walked its way all the way through the Old Testament. Then I could show you where that physical seed got killed out, wiped out, and then Satan knows that the physical seed ain't going to work anymore, so he brings it about in a spiritual seed. Why do you think David went out and killed Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine. Goliath was of that seed. And when David killed him, he wiped out David. Uh, he wiped out Goliath. Goliath was a remnant of those giants. I don't see any giants walking around today. I don't see you going out with an unsafe person at work that gives you a tough time and getting out your sword and hacking his head off. It's the difference between the literal spiritual seed, a literal spiritual seed in the Old Testament where God wipes it out and then the a spiritual seed where it comes in in another form and fashion. The difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Old Testament and the New Testament. Your battle and my battle, we don't go out and fight armies over the thing of God. We don't fight individuals in armed or hand-to-hand combat. We don't use bows and arrows, swords. We don't hack their arms off, hack their legs off. We don't kill them literally. Our battle is a spiritual warfare. And that's what he's saying. He's saying we don't, wrestle, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against principalities. There's the devil against powers, against the rulers of darkness. There's the devil right there. We don't, in the Old Testament, that was all literal. And then they got wiped out, and the devil said, I'm going to change tactics. And then he went spiritual, see? Then he says in verse, uh, uh, verse uh, 13, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, I want to tell you this. Four times. Here's your job. Your job and my job is one job. He tells you four times in two verses. Your job and my job is one word. It's the word to stand. That's all we're here for. That's all we're here for. Last week, I told you how that men and women are afraid so they can't get saved. Because they're afraid to get saved because of their fear, their fear factor and they're afraid. And so they never get saved. And I guess probably fear is one of the greatest things that keeps people back from being saved. Old Bob, used to, oh, uh, you know, old Bob Jones used to, Sr. used to talk about how that people uh, were afraid to get saved. And uh, he, he, he talked about the fact that, uh, that it's important that fear is a healthy emotion. The Bible says that uh, Noah moved with fear in the preparing of the ark of the saving of his household. Fear is an emotion God gave you, but you don't let that fear keep you from getting saved. You get saved because you're afraid not to, see? Well, in the same token, you have God's people after they get saved that are afraid to take a stand. Let me tell you something. When we start talking about feet shod here with a preparation, we start talking about the combat boots and the work boots. When you start seeing how your feet, when it talks about a little bit here, feet shod with a preparation of the gospel of peace, when you start to see exactly what that means, I'm going to tell you something. It'll mean you taking a stand against some of your friends. It'll mean you taking a stand, in some cases, maybe with your own family. 
It'll mean you taking a stand against people in this church that don't want to do what's right, and you know what's right, and you could have the right of turning them around by saying, you know what, what you did was wrong, instead of just going along with them. So you got the fear factor in both cases. Some people are afraid to get saved. After they get saved, some people are afraid to stand. But I want to tell you something. You're being here this morning. I don't know why you're here. I mean, I got an idea, uh, but I don't know inside your heart why you're here. But I'll tell you what, if it's any other reason to get yourself better prepared to take a stand for God, you're here for the wrong reason. He says, we're to take the armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Then he says, stand therefore. And up there in verse 11, he says that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You're to take a stand. You're to take a stand. You're to take a stand. Now, down here in verses 14 through 18, we got the armor. And we're going to do with this exactly what we did when we was in Exodus last week. We're going to put it into an order that's conducive to what we want to look at here to get to our point. But he says this. And there's seven pieces of armor here. He talks about loins girding about with truth. Breastplate of righteousness. One we're going to focus on a little bit are the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Notice the gospel of peace, just like Romans chapter 10, verse 15. Shield of faith. Helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, praying always. And what we're going to do with these seven is exactly what we did with the four aspects of Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look now only in a different aspect, different format. We're going to look at your feet, not at the day of salvation, but you put your shoes on. We're going to look today after you're saved, getting yourself prepared, getting your feet shod with a preparation of the gospel of peace. We'll put these into a study format that'll go along with our outline. All right, the first thing here, I got down the way I wanted to do it, is loins girt about with truth. Now, last week in Exodus chapter 12, we saw the Bible talked about loins girt, you see. That's the day you got saved. The day you got saved, you got the Bible. But you don't know what to do with the Bible. In preparation, you take that, and I told you last week that your loins is your strength of a man or a woman. Job chapter 38, verses 1, 2, and 3 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, answer thou me. You ever see a man when he gets up and he's going to do something? Or he's going to, you know, the classic scene is, you know, you're in a, you're in a, a bar someplace. I hope you're not, but you're in a bar someplace, you know, and or somebody yells at you something over there or they're picking on you and the guy finally gets up going to do something. What's the first thing he does? He gets up and he... You know what he's doing? Girding up his loins. Pulling up his pants. Now we live in a world today where everybody's trying to pull them down. He says, gird up thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee an answer. Now, the context of that doctrinally is the great white throne judgment. And that's a picture of God demanding from an unsaved man or a woman some answers why you think your righteousness got you through instead of trusting God's son's righteousness. That's what it is doctrinally. But let's put it in an application for you and for me. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says that you and I ought to be ready at any moment of time to give an answer. To anyone that asks us for the reason of the hope within you. That Bible says that you ought to be ready. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And it starts with having your loins girt about with truth. When you got saved it just said loins girt. Now we're in preparation mode. And it's now taking the Bible and adding it to your loins. And making your walk straight. 
Remember when we studied uh, on uh, Song of Solomon on New Year's Eve? We talked about the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and it talked about his legs being like legs of pillars of marble fitted with sockets of gold. That's a picture of where you ought to be as a child of God. God's legs are like marble. There's no harder metal on planet earth. In fact, they use it for tombstones because it doesn't wear and it lasts forever. And it's a picture of Christ being firmly, steadfastly in his feet, unmovable, and knowing what he's standing for. We have a problem with that. We have a problem with that. You know, I don't really care what a person believes about the Bible. I talk with people all the time. Here's some of the weirdest stuff you ever heard in your life. Thursday night Bible study. Through all the course of my years, I've heard about everything there is to hear. And I don't really look at somebody, uh, and, and I mean, I may not agree with them, and I may think that they don't know what they're talking about, but the bottom line is this. I can respect a man or a woman with what they believe, even if it's wrong, what I respect about that is at least that they know why they believe what they believe. I think it drives me crazy if people to shoot their mouth off about the Bible and you throw them an open Bible and they don't have a clue. Not only explain it to me, they don't even know why they believe it themselves. They heard it from somebody else, they read it somewhere, they got it off the internet, so therefore that's the truth of it, see? And that's where the research ends. Most of the people you're going to deal with can be put away in a heartbeat when it comes to questioning you and the authority of the Word of God simply because they don't even know why they believe what they believe. It's called tactics. It's something that you learn as you get your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Let me tell you something. Real strength of a child of God is in the truth that he has and the ability that he has to use that truth. That's the key. And that's why if you don't learn the Bible, if you don't learn how to use the Bible, you'll never take a stand. You know why? Because you don't know what the stand is all about. You don't even know what the stand is. You don't even know what you should be standing for. You just think, well, we're a church, and they got a Bible, therefore I'm supposed to stand for the Bible, stand for this, stand for that. You don't have a clue when the Bible gave you two clues about the wiles of the devil. And you can run that back and find out what that is, and then find out what the evil day is. You've got to stand against two things. One, the wiles of the devil. Two, an evil day. You better find out what they are if you're going to have to stand for them, don't you think? He says, gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee an answer. Hey, I'm going to tell you something. The world wants an answer from you. If they know you're a Christian, they're going to, they're going to belittle you. They're going to make fun of you. They're going, to, they're going to do everything they can to discredit you. And you know what? You need to be able to stand up to that. Nobody likes conflict unless you're an idiot. Nobody goes out looking for a fight. Nobody likes to get into a consternation issue with somebody. Nobody likes to go out looking for trouble. And, and, and most of God's people don't do that. But when somebody challenges you and somebody puts the credibility of the Bible and God on the line, that's where you take your stand. That may be people that you work with. It may be people in your family. It may be people in this church. We put in our deacons, what, about two, three years ago now? 
And I, and I, gave, I told everybody on there was going to be a deacon. I gave everybody, I told everybody, here's what I expect. I even taped it. And I said, here's what I expect. You got a week to think about it. And if you don't want to do it, you can't do it, then that's fine. No problem. Nobody get, nobody, everybody was fine with it. You know what? You know what one of the jobs of a deacon is in this church? To stand for the integrity and what this church teaches and what it believes. You say, well, I don't agree with it. Now, what are you doing as a deacon? I mean, what part of the tape didn't you not understand? That's all that question I got. There has to be something that we stand for. And you know what? When I, st- when I started this church, when God started it uh, uh, through us about, what, six, seven years ago? I was the only one at that point that knew, other than my family, that knew what I wanted to stand for. But that isn't true anymore because everybody now has come in and grown into the point where if it's our church and it's worth protecting and it's worth taking care of, you've got to take a stand. My, I love Billy Jack movies. How many ever saw a Billy Jack movie? Oh, whoo, Billy Jack fans here. Bob, did you ever see Billy Jack? You didn't. You remind me of Billy Jack. My favorite line in the Billy Jack, and I don't even know which one it is. I guess he made several. My favorite line in the Billy Jack movie is when he's in the park, and this bully comes up to him, and he's pushing everybody around. Billy Jack didn't like bullies. I don't like bullies either. I ain't Billy Jack. But anyway, and he comes up to Billy Jack, and, and, and Billy Jack's standing up. You know, it's a classic movie. The bullies beat the little guys. Billy Jack comes and takes the bullies on and kicks the fire out of them. And, and kind of like a Steven Seagal movie, you know. And so all these, and Billy Jack comes into the park. And this guy's really tough, front of his friends, you know. And he's looking at Billy Jack and he's telling all these things he's going to do, how he's going to whip his this and whip his that, you know. And Billy Jack just standing there laughing, a little smiling at him. And the guy finally says, well, what's so funny? Billy Jack says one thing. He says, you know what's funny? He says, in just a second, I'm going to wheel around and I'm going to kick your face in and you're not going to be anything to do about it. And then he did. <laughs> and you know what? He didn't do anything about it. You know what we need in churches today? Billy Jacks. You don't go looking for trouble, but you sure make sure the bullies find it when they get it. And you let somebody go off on you about the Bible, you just sit there and smile. How many times when somebody was railing on me about what I didn't know about the Bible, what they did, I just sit there and smile. And I wouldn't say it, but in my mind, I'd say that famous line. You know what? In about 35 seconds, I'm going to kick your head off spiritually, and you ain't going to do anything about it. <laughs> loins gird about with truth. That translates into your walk, and that goes into your feet through your loins. Then he says this, having on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this is one that deals directly with your walk and your feet, isn't it? Notice over here in Romans chapter 13, verses 12 and, and 14. You see, breastplate of righteousness, that's like a flak vest. They discovered after World War II that almost 85% of the death casualties were due to body injuries. Not so much from bullet, from, 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 from fragments, like, you know, a mortar fragment or a, an artillery fragment. Not a, not a projectile, but a piece of a fragment, a piece of flak. And so they developed after World War II and wore them in Korea, wore them in Vietnam. Anybody that was in Vietnam had to lug it around, wear it, weighed about 35 pounds. They called them flak vests. Police officers wear them today, except theirs are bulletproof. If you notice your average police officer and you look closely at his shirt, you'll see that he looks like he's got some big piece of something underneath of him. He's got a bulletproof vest on. 
And that thing will stop just about anything. won't stop maybe a rifle, but it'll stop all the handguns. You can shoot him. I knew a guy a long time. I don't know where he's at now, but he was a friend of mine, and he used to go around doing demonstrations. He made, he made vests, and he'd walk around, and he'd demonstrate him. He'd take a 44 Magnum and hold it as thing and shoot himself in the, <laughs> in the stomach. <laughs> I think he's dead now, but anyway... <clears throat> And that's what you got. This thing here is an armor. It's armor. It's like a vest. You saw the old knights and what? They put on the armor with their arms stick out and the metal thing around them. It's called the breastplate of righteousness. See? This one protects your heart. Because the thing you've got to protect, number one, as a child of God and as a soldier, is your attitude of heart. He says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. It's your, when your hard attitude goes, doesn't matter what you got up here. Doesn't matter how well you do anything. The breastplate protects your heart. So he says in Romans chapter 13, uh, verses 12 through 14, he says, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Then he says in verse 14, and, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Look what he said. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Like you're putting on a coat. How do you put on Christ? I know how to put on a coat. I put one arm in here, one arm in here, and pull it up and zip it up. That protects me from the cold. If I had a flak vest, I'd put one arm through this hole, one arm through that hole, zip it up, and it could go out. When the bombs went off, it would catch the fragments. How do you put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Like a coat. In the concept that he is your armor of light. That he is your flock vest. That he protects your heart and your internal organs. Your vital organs. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 7. By the word of truth. By the power of God. By the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. It's your new nature. That's making sure you keep your heart right with God. And then it said make no provision. That means food. No provision for the flesh. Don't feed your flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The breastplate of righteousness. Make sure that your attitude of heart. Hey, let me tell you something. <clears throat> when a child of God begins to have struggles, and a child of God begins that wayward walk away from God and away from church, and away from, I don't care what they say. The bottom line is this. It starts in the heart attitude that it changes. Of loving him with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. Do you have any understanding how hard that is? To love him with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. One of the other places adds to it, and all your strength. And brother, that is true, because sometimes it takes all the strength that you have to keep loving him in the face of things you've got to put up with, which is mostly ourselves. See, I can teach you the Bible. I can train you in the truth. But I can't give you the right attitude toward God. You have to develop that yourself. I cannot make you feel the urgency. I cannot give you the steel in your backbone that makes you want to take a stand, no matter who it is. I can't do that. You have to decide that. Then the next thing, the third one. Go back to verse 16 now of chapter uh, uh, 6. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, this one's interesting. And I don't know if you've caught it. 
I don't know if you've seen the switch up here. I don't know if you, and, and maybe you wouldn't if you didn't just read and through it. But, it, but basically so far, uh, all of our armor has been offensive armor. All of the armor that we've seen so far is that you put on when you move out. You move forward. You advance for God. You take the attack to the enemy. Now this piece isn't offensive, it's defensive. And whether you know it or not, all warfare breaks down into these two components. And by the way, so does ministry. You know, I've seen Christians in both cases. I've seen Christians that were great preachers. They were great witnesses. They did great things for God. They could get up and they could witness to anybody and they could do this and they could do that or they could get up and give a testimony or they knew a lot about the Bible and they were great on the offense. But take one person that says something bad about them or takes a cheap shot at them behind their back and they fold up like a broken accordion. Then I've seen people on the other side who could take it and take it and take it. I've seen some of God's people in my years who could take it and take it and take it and take it and take it that I didn't think they could, that they could take anymore. And they still take it. But they never do one thing meaningless for God all of their lives. The ministry is a balance, folks. That warfare, that armor for this warfare that you've got to take a stand, it's offensive and defensive. You can be great on the offense, but if you don't have a defense, you're going to get taken out. It's just that simple. You know, the devil knows each of our, you know, I don't know, I don't know what yours is, but we all have our weaknesses. And in ministry, I'm not even talking about our weaknesses in life, we all have those, but in ministry, we all have our weaknesses. And what a good Christian ought to do is identify those weaknesses. Most of the time, we don't want to identify them. We pretend we don't have them because we're not honest with ourselves because we want everybody to think we're something we're not and we, want, and we think it ourselves. And so we don't focus on our, our spiritual weaknesses in ministry. And I'm telling you, everybody has their weakness. And I'll tell you something else. You may not want to admit it and you may not know where it's at, but oh, the devil knows where it's at. Oh, he does. He got it. It's in his little notebook. He's got it. He's got it. Verse 16 says, Wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And all ministry has two aspects. All ministry is going to have an offense where you're on the charge, and then you have a defense that you're going to have to defend yourself. And most Christians are not good at a balance of both. They're just not good at it. And this is why I told you that uh, uh, when, you, when, you, when you get to this point, and these, are, these will be your work boots, see? Because you've got to do a work for the ministry. You've got to have the running shoes because you're in a race. We have to make haste. You've got to have the combat boots because we're in a warfare. But then you've got to have the work boots. And that's why I told you the work of the ministry. This is what you're preparing yourself. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Work boots with steel toes. Steel toes. Steel toes. This is why Paul tells young Timothy over there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, that you and I, and he was to endure a hardness, a hardness, a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. A hardness, a hardness. You know, years ago when I was just a, when I was just a young guy, and I remember this probably took place, I, I think I got right with God in April, around April. 
And I remember I went to my first camp working uh, there to help the kids. And I started in the ministry with, with the gospel and the stars. I had a telescope. I knew astronomy. And God hooked me up with another boy. And we worked out together. And we had a great thing. And we went to camp all summer long. I worked all day long uh, at a job. And then I drove out uh, after work and, and waited around after the service. And then I, uh, I uh, stayed out till 11 or 12 o'clock. You know, showing these kids and doing the gospel in the stars. Then I'd drive back home, go to bed, get up for work the next morning, and do the same thing every night at camp. But on senior high week and junior high week, they always fell on my two weeks vacation. And I remember I just got right with God in April, and I was doing my gospel in the stars, and we had a, an old war horse come in and preach uh, in, in a senior high camp. And I was sitting down there, and he's preaching on a, out, of, out of Ephesians chapter 6. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, you know what, and he's, he's saying, he says, you know what, some of you young men, some of you young ladies, you're going to surrender your life to, to service for God. That's what this camp's all about. And he said, some of you are going to really mean it for God. And he said, I want to tell you something. He says, if you decide you're going to stand for God, and you're going to decide you're going to do what's right, and you decide that you're not going to compromise, you're not going to quit, if you decide you're going to do what God has called you to do, and you mean it, he said, I want to tell you right now, the battle that you're going to enter into, the battle that you're going to get into is going to make, make, look, make World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Chateau Ferry, Battle of Bull Run, and every major battle down through history, I like, look like a bunch of campfire girls having a cookout. And I remember as a young man sitting down there listening to that man say that, and at the time, I couldn't grasp what he was saying. In fact, I don't think I really fully believed what he was saying. Because I was new at this. Why, when I went down and got saved that night, and at that Sunday night, and went down and rededicated my life, and got up off my knees, I thought every Christian in that building just loved God as much as I did. If you'd have tried to tell me that there were deacons cheating on their wives, and there was people backbiting this person, and there was gossip going on, and there was lying going on, and there was drinking going on, and there was smoking going on, I'd have fought you. But since that time, boy, have I learned some things. I understand what that old boy said that night down there. I'm almost 40 years ago in my life. But I want to tell you, after 36 years in the ministry and seeing everything you could see and dealing with everything you had to deal with and being part of it in my life, you know what? I understand exactly what he's saying. And I want to say something to you. And you better get it now. We've got a lot of new people here coming in, and a lot of people excited, a lot of people have been around for a while, you're getting plugged in. Well, let me just give you one thing, and if you don't hear anything else I said today, you better hear this. If you're going to decide in your heart, you're going to give your life to God, and you're going to get the things out of your life, and you're going to do what God wants you to do, and you're going to take this stand, and you're going to, you got saved, and you got your shoes on your feet, now you're at the point where you want to have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and that's your mindset and that's your attitude i'm going to tell you right now the battle you're going to get into against you to keep you from ever getting where god wants you to be is going to make all the battles of this world look just like a bunch of little kids shooting marbles you're going to get into it, my friend, faster and greater in a greater degree. And you're going to, you better learn not only how to do the offensive side, you better learn how to do the defensive side. But boy, they're going to come after you. They're going to come after you. You know, 
people don't really see what the really the ministry is. And, and I don't know how to even show it to them. You know, you get some of you young guys, and I know this is true because it was true of me. You get young guys to come in, and, and young gals too. When they see me preach up here, and when I'm not here, they see somebody else preaching. They see people working with people. And they see all of the things that, uh, they see all of the things that you do uh, and, and people do. And they see, you know, they see tonight with, with John and Joe getting up there and every other guy that goes out there and do that, does that. And they see all of that stuff that goes on, you know. And they, they uh, uh, I'll tell you, they see all of that and they, they think that that's really the side of ministry that they see. They see us Thursday night, Sunday morning, the preaching ministry, the discipleship. They see all of the things that, that are the outward, the offensive things. But I want to tell you something, my friend. There's a defensive side to it. There's a side that you never see until you get into ministry. Some of you are already seeing it. But I'll tell you what, I can't train you for that. That's part of the education process that you get, that you got to get. There's a defensive side. Listen, in 36 years of ministry, the main attacks in my life has never been from the lost world or unsaved people. It's always been from God's people. And you better learn that. You better not try to go any farther in this if you think, and there's the balance, man. There's the balance. There's the balance. And I'll tell you what the problem with every one of you is that messages like this are good for because it's found over here in, uh, where is it here? I got it. Luke chapter 14, verse 28. You don't have to turn to it. You write it down. I'll read it to you. He says, for which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? You see, when you see the offensive side, the glory side, People standing here and preaching or standing up here and singing or two and Thursday night or discipling or Bible basics and people working with people and people getting saved. That's the glory side. But most people see that. They don't see the other side and then they don't sit down and count the cost. And so when it happens and when you get blindsided and you get knocked down and you have to take a stand and you have to use the, sh you have to use the shield, notice it says to quench the fiery darts. People are going to be throwing fiery darts at you all your life once you decide to take that stand. It says in verse 29 that if you don't finish it, they're happy to mock you. It uses the word mock. That you decide you're going to build this tower for God. You don't count the cost. You can't finish it. And then they laugh at you because you didn't finish it. They make fun of you. Boy, you better learn that principle, kid. I'm telling you, you want in this fight with me? You better get some steel in your backbone and gravel in your gut. You better be realized that it's more than just standing up and teaching. It's taking it when nobody's going to take it but you. It's enduring a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. There are going to be people, God's people, who are going to get jealous of you. They're going to get envious of you. Because God's doing something with you that he's not doing with them. I've seen it all my life. I'm telling you. You're going to have people, 
You're gonna, I, I have seen situations in my life where some guy or some gal brought some guy or gal to church. And they brought them to church, and that person, you know, that they brought got saved, began to grow, began to get into the Bible. The person that brought them got a better deal someplace else. And they started fading out and fading out and fading out. And then, you know, come into me in my office and sit down and talk to me and tell me how rotten this person really is after you brought them to Christ and they got saved. And now you're going to sit there and tell me how goofy they are, how rotten they are. What, you think I fell off the turnip truck yesterday? You think I can't discern what your problem is? That they're growing past where you were? How embarrassing it must be for you to bring somebody to this church four years ago. And now they're up here and you're down here. I get upset too. That's got to be embarrassing for somebody. So what do we do? Do we get right? No, we don't get right. We always trash the person because we want to maintain how good we look. When I didn't buy into it, she said, well, we're going to leave the church. And I said, well, I guess you'll have to leave the church. We're going to go find another church. And between this church and the next church, she stopped and picked up a carton of cigarettes and a six-pack of beer. Now Now I know what your problem was. They're going to lie about you. Sometimes they're going to tell the truth about you. Let me tell you something. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 says there's six things. Did you get it? Proverbs 6, verse 16, six things. Six, six, six. There's six things that God hates. And the seventh one makes an abomination. You know what it is? It's showing discord among the brethren. You know an unsaved person cannot do that because they're not part of the brethren? You know God's people are the most famous sowers of discord among God's people you have ever met in your life. And you know what? I got news for you. You ain't going to stop it. You're not going to change it. There is not going to be any revival anywhere in the history of the world that's going to fix that problem. You're going to have to use the shield. We had a guy in this church that started the church with us. I won't tell you who he is. Most of you don't forgot him. Most of you don't even know him. And he was a good guy, but he quit growing at some point in his life. He wanted to coast because he thought being with me for 20 years was, would give him a skateboard ride. And he found out that that doesn't work. And he come to the point where people, younger people, were doing things that he thought he ought to do. He got to the point where he thought that, uh, and he even sandbagged some of you younger Christians to me. But like, I don't know what's going on. And he got to the point where it got, he got so irritable with it, and he got so frustrated with it, that he had to just bail out and go someplace else. And he ain't going anywhere else. You see, because his real problem was authority. That's why he quit growing. So he can't find a church to go to, so he just has one in his home, so he can become his own authority. Hello? You're not going to stop that. We're not going to stop that. We may not have any here like that right now, but give us time. We still got early in the the service. You're not going to stop that. There's going to be people who badmouth you, who are going to try to hurt you because they're dead in the water spiritually, and the only thing they can do to maintain their spirituality is to 
bust you. Notice I didn't say me, I said you, because they'd never say anything bad about me. We got a guy in this church, came to this church about four years ago. And I'm not telling you who he is. One of my dearest friends in the whole wide world. I love him more than he knows it. And he's barely been an inspiration to me many times. He doesn't even know it. But I knew this guy when he went to another church. Barb and I had said many, many times, you know, if there was anybody we could ever have in our church, it would be this, this couple. And this guy made a terrible mistake. You know what the mistake he was? He questioned his pastor on something his pastor did. Questioned his pastor. Now, this guy was a deacon. This guy taught Sunday school. This guy did about everything. He'd been in that church probably 40, 30, 20 years. He was a stale, he was a rock. But before, he, because he questioned the pastor on one thing, suddenly now he's a bad guy. And the pastor did what all pastors do when they're insecure and they're idiots. He got all of his little cronies together and everybody made him a bad guy. And when he came to my church, pastor called me on the phone and said, I hear so-and-so is going to your church. And I said, yeah, he is. He said, well, then let me tell you about so-and-so, just so you know. You know what I said back to him? I said, that amazes me. That amazes me. He said, well, brother, he says, that's just the way it goes sometimes. I said, but that amazes me. I said, here's a guy, but for 20 years, he was a rock in your church. You probably figure up his tithe compared to everybody else in that church in 20-some years. He probably gave more than half any five people in that church. I know he did everything in the church. For 20 years, this guy was your rock. You had him teach. You had him preach. And suddenly, overnight, you know what I'd do? I'd start checking water fountains in your church. I think you've got two different water fountains. And as long as you drink out of this one, you're a good guy. But when you drink out of this one, now you're a bad guy. And I think he drank out of the bad guy water fountain. I said, I'll tell you something else. If a guy that long with you, who you had to do all those things, and now you're telling me he's a bad guy, why did you put him in all those places for 20 years? That don't speak well of your leadership. Maybe the problem wasn't him. Maybe the problem is you. Well, he got real quiet then. Well, I just want to let you know. Well, I thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your concern. Thank you. Thank you. Mucho gracias. I'm bisexual. I speak two languages. <coughs> oh, that's bilingual. I'm sorry. <coughs> I, speak, I speak Spanish a little bit. Nacho Belgrande. I'm telling you. There's pastors in this city. More than we could put on a bus. There's pastors in this city who are so intimidated by anybody. That they will lie about you, they will blast you, they will do everything in the world to try to hinder you because they're afraid of you. And I'm telling you, you're going to have to take it. You're going to have to realize that's just the way it is. You're going to have to know that there's people that's going to get under conviction by the Holy Spirit of God and they're going to see you do right and they're not doing right and they see you doing right and they're not doing right and the Holy Spirit of God takes what you're doing and what they're not doing and boy, he gives them a fit. Now, they don't have the courage or the guts to go out in a full moon, rip their clothes off, paint their bodies and curse at God. No, they'll just take it out on you. They'll take it out on you. Now, I wish we could change that with a gigantic revival. I wish we could start with all the preachers in this town, get them down here and bring somebody in and, and just make it all right. 
Then I'd get all the Christians in the world and bring them in, and then we'd get four or five people come in, and we'd get that right. And then we could all hold hands and kumbaya our way to heaven. You know what? It ain't going to happen. It's never going to happen. The devil knows the weakness of each buddy in ministry, and he, if you don't fix that ministry, or that weak, if you don't fix that weakness, he'll exploit that weakness. That's the way it goes, boys. Welcome to the ministry. You ain't going to change it. But you have to stand up to it. I remember one time years ago, and I was, I was just a young guy. But I, if, I, if I'd have been a little longer and knew what was going on, I'd have done it. I remember one time years ago with under Mel Shabaka. We were out rocking down there. And, and, uh, and Mel was, I mean, we, I talk about him in a positive sense because he's the apostle Paul in my life. But many people hated Mel. There was a faction in his own, in their own church back there that just thought he was from the, he the Antichrist because he believed the King James Bible, the Word of God. A great schism was happening back then. And I thought we walked down the hall and this big old football player that Mel won to the Lord and was discipling and worked with and got his life out of the pit. And we're walking down there and somebody took a cheap shot at saying something about Mel. That old boy just took it. He didn't know any better, see? He did it in Jesus' name with love and truth. He grabbed that old boy and picked him clean up off the wall. And he said, your personal opinion about Mel Sabaka is your own business. But you keep it to yourself because he's the apostle Paul of my life and he turned my life around. You say one more word in my presence and I'm going to throw you through that window and put him down. Now, I couldn't do that. I'd have to say, stand right there. Go out my car and get my jack and say, stand on this. (laughs) You say one more word and I'm going to put this jack down. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> got to stand for something or you stand for nothing. It's that simple. Hey, there's going to be some of you people in here that you're going to raise your children up and they're going to be in ministry with you side by side the way they're supposed to be. They're going to be little right now. They're going to grow up and they're going to learn to love God. They're going to do this and they're going to learn to love that. And you know what? And there's going to be some good, godly, sanctified uh, couple out there, a Christian out there who's lost their kids. That their kids won't come to church. Kids are out in the world someplace and they're going to get so convicted because they failed as parents but they don't have the gut to deal with it that they're going to blame you and your kids for their mistakes. Get used to it! Amen. Welcome to the ministry. Deal with it, brother. I'm telling you, these are the darts. And there's no class I can teach you for that aspect of ministry. I tell you all the time, whatever happens when you deal with people, don't take it personal. People are going to start to grow, and they don't want to grow anymore, and they don't want to get up and say, hey, I'm out of fellowship, I'm drinking, I'm smoking, I'm running around with a wild, worldly crowd, so you know what I'm doing? I'm just going to blame it on you. Take it. The greatest aspect of all that bull crap is simply this. There is a judgment seat of Christ coming, pal. Have fun with it. I can train you in the Bible. I can train you in Bible principles. I can train you in Bible concepts. But this kind of education, you need to learn going through it and then growing through it. The shield of faith is to deflect those fiery darts that's going to hit your heart, wound your spirit, get you to lose your focus, get you to be discouraged. Now, I'm going to just say something here. Many of you are really doing well. This is a little personal addendum here. Many of you are doing really well, if not most of you. 
And I really see God, you taking the principles, as far as I'm concerned, the hand of God on our church and what God is doing and going to do had nothing to do with me. Obviously, it has to do with the Bible. But it has even more to do with the fact that many of you are grasping those principles. You've got your shoes on your feet, and now you want to have your feet shod with a preparation. You want to do something with what you know. And God is blessing this church because of your attitude. That's all it is, as far as I'm concerned. Hey, I've been teaching the same stuff. I, was, I found a tape. <clears throat> I was watching a war movie, and I found I forgot I had, <clears throat> and I was watching the war movie. And it, when it went off the war movie, I was getting ready about 11 o'clock, and I was getting ready to go up, and suddenly, here I was. And the date on the tape was 1985. I had to look at me. Man, I was good looking back then, I'll tell you. <laughs> I had hair. <clears throat> And I, I watched myself, and I was doing a Bible study, much like I do on Thursday night. And I listened to that sucker for an hour. And I came away with one great, satisfying fact deep down in my mind and my heart. It was probably the most gratifying thing that happened to me all of last week. And it was simply that I went to bed that night with a smile on my face, knowing that there it was, 1985, here it is, 2009. I don't know how many years that is, but it's a lot. The bottom line is this. I still believe and teach the same things the same way today I did back then. I haven't changed one frittling thing about what I believe or what I teach. I thank God for that. You may not appreciate that. I didn't say it so you could appreciate it. I said it so I could appreciate it again. I need an appreciation from it. I need that help. I need a hug. Thank you. <laughs> tell you something. Most of you, many of you are doing really well. But let me give you one thing you got to work on. And I can't teach you this, but I'm giving you the advice and I'm giving you the, I'm giving you the counsel on it. You're only half done. You're half baked. You got the great spirit to give. You got the great spirit to love unconditionally. You got the ability to forgive unconditionally. You got all the good things. But the weakness side of you is the fact this you better get your shield up because you're going to be vulnerable and you're going to get clobbered. In the Christian world today, write this somewhere in your Bible. In the Christian world today, no good deed will go unpunished. You're going to get clobbered. You're going to get clobbered. You have a great heart. You have a sweet spirit. You have an appetite and an aptitude for ministry. But you need also to get a hard side, a shield. You see, you've got to learn to endure a hardness without crushing the spirit. It's a balance. It's a balance. Very frankly, <clears throat> I think it's good. You know, I don't, I don't know much about football. <clears throat> I like to watch it, you know. I've got to say this to you. I think the Chiefs probably, maybe not this year. <laughs> I, well, no, I don't know. I don't know. But I want to tell you something. Maybe they won't. I don't know. But I'll tell you what. It won't be because they don't have the right kind of coach with the right kind of attitude. You see, the Larry Johnsons and the, and the Jim Bowies, or what's that guy's catcher? Jim Bowie was the guy with the, with the Alamo. What was the, uh, what, what's, the what's his name? Dwayne Bow. Dwayne Bow. Yeah. Those guys, <coughs> million-dollar guys. And, and then I'm just saying there, but they're all the same. <clears throat> you get somebody think somebody pays you thirty million dollars, you think you must be pretty good. So you know what you do? You walk on the field thinking you're good. You got a thirty million dollar walk. 
You walk out there with all the rookies laying around, and you look around, and you say, you know what? I don't have to work as hard as they do. I can take a slough off. You know why? Because I'm worth $30 million. Now, if you don't know human nature is that way, go look in the mirror. <clears throat> and you why they walk around out there, they don't give as hard. You know what he does? What's that guy's, what's the coach's name? Todd uh, Haley. You know what he does? He'll take guys that were $60 million and put them on a third string. Bring the other guys up. Well, how's that for a $30 million third stringer? He'll set you out of a game and put somebody else in. Because you don't, because your mind is not on the game. Military is the same way. Elite military groups, they have what they call spot promotions. A, a lieutenant's a captain when he shouldn't be. Because, but because he's in the unit that he's in and he holds the line when he does, instead of being a lieutenant, he's a captain. A major should be a captain, he's a major. A colonel uh, is, should be a major, he's a, he's a colonel. Why? Because they have spot promotions and because you hold the line, do what you're supposed to do, and keep focused and do the mission, you get those spot promotions. You screw one up, you drop back a rank. That's the way churches ought to be run. You don't get to do anything around here because you're my friend. You're all my friend. Somebody says, well, I've been with you for 50 years. Well, congratulations. Thank you. That's a, and that'd probably be an endurance award at some point. But uh, you think that cuts? I'm interested in people who are going to keep their feet shod. You know what a leader is? In my mind, a leader is he or her that whatever they do, they never lose focus of the task that's before them. That's a leader. They never get sidetracked. And boy, in the ministry, there's a lot to sidetrack it. <coughs> you get puffed up with what you know. You get your nose better at a joint because you don't get to do something you think you ought to do. You don't have the shield up, and the devil knows what your weaknesses are. He knows what your weaknesses are, <coughs> and he's going to take advantage of it. If I was running a football team, and <coughs> I run in the NFL, <coughs> you know how I'd do it? I'd say, everybody's got a base salary of, of $100,000 this year. <coughs> it's all you're going to get. And then here's what we're going to do. Every touchdown you get, you get $10,000. Every good block you make, you get $5,000. Every good run you make, you get $6,000. Don't you know performance would improve? Well, I, I don't understand what's wrong with that. I think that's the way it ought to be. But that's the way it is here. You don't get any points for being my friend. I love you. I'm glad you're my friend. Yes, we've been through some deep times together. I appreciate that. But you know what? What has all that got to do with the book and feet shod with the preparation of gospel of peace and keeping it focused? You tell me. <clears throat> I'm telling you. I'm telling you. <clears throat> I can train you in all those things, but you have to. You have to endure a hardness. Then he says the helmet of salvation. Now that's a great example because it simply says this. If you're not saved when you get into this battle, you might as well forget it. Devil's going to knock you out before you get started. <clears throat> That's why you see so many people come to church and they don't last very long. You know why? Because they never got saved in the first place. They don't have anything for God to build on. They come down and made some an emotional experience, you know, and said, oh, I want to get saved, cried crocodile tears, threw kind of snot over the front two rows, and did all those things. They went right back up and never in their mind had any intention of repenting and turning life around. And then six weeks later, right back to the world again. Helmet of salvation. Helmet of salvation. Then he says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's your weapon. The weapon is the most important thing of a foot soldier. When I was in the basic training in 1968, my primary weapon back then was an M14. As far as I'm concerned, the greatest battle rifle the world has ever seen. A little bit later on, we switched over to M16s. I don't know how many times I can remember 
In my outfit, when I went to AIT, everybody had to qualify expert. If you didn't qualify expert, then you were out. You didn't take any second place. Everybody had the fire expert. You know how we learned the fire expert? The key to firing is holding that rifle steady and not squeezing too fast and knocking the front sight off. You know what we did? 100 times a day, we'd get in a prone position. And we take turns. And on the front of that M14, there was a, two, a leaf sight that comes up like this. They put a dime on that sight. That dime would just teeter there. And you had, to be able to, you had to be able to kick the safety off, squeeze that trigger, and make that rifle click without the dime falling off the front sight. You could do that. You could hit any target you want. They didn't just take it out there and throw us out there and give you a bunch of bullets and say, get better at it. <laughs> they didn't give you a machine gun and say, just spray the area. They wanted one shot, one kill. One shot, one kill. It was the proficiency. And the only way you hit that target downrange is to practice with that weapon. There were many nights in the middle of the night, there were many nights in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, boy, in the barracks, the lights came on. Our rifles were stacked down the middle of the barracks. Many a night, that DI come in and kicked the garbage can over and beat up thing and flashed the lights on, woke everybody up, got everybody out of them racks, and we pulled them rifles and got those rifles in our hands. Hit that barracks was about twice as long as this thing here. He'd walk all the way down through that thing. He'd get everybody at a, a sitting down that floor uh, in the, on a side squad bay of the barracks. He'd get down that end where the light switch was, and he, we just got our eyes adjusted to the lights. He'd turn the lights off, and he'd say, take it apart, and he'd walk. You could hear him walk. And by the time he got down to the other end of that barracks, you better have that M14 or that M16 field strip down in the dark. He'd get down at the end, turn the lights back on, talk to you for a few minutes, let your eyes get back up again, turn that light on and say, put them back together. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because you've got to know your weapon. You get out there in a combat situation, and you're in a foxhole in the middle of the night, what are you going to do? When your weapon jams, you're going to say, time out, give me a flashlight? you got to be able to take that thing, clear that weapon, take it apart, put it back together, and pitch back blindfolded. That's the way you ought to know the Bible. That's my goal for teaching you the Bible. What do you think I do Thursday night for? What do you think I do Bible basics for? What do you think I do Bible Institute for? What do you think I come here on Sunday morning and do this for? You think I do this because I just love to beat you up? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do as I think about it. <clears throat> you got to learn your weapon. You're no good to me. You're no good to this church. You're no good to God. And you'll never take a stand if you can't clear that jam. Never take a stand to clear that jam. Write that down. I'm going to use that. You've got to be able to take it apart, put it back together, know everything, doctrinally, inspirationally, historically, put it together. You've got to be able to use it. You've got to be able to know what it's capable of. You gotta be able to know what to do with it when you gotta when you gotta use it. You gotta know what's going on. Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piecing to even dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifested in his sight. Seven things in that book, in that passage, the Bible does for you. But notice, it cuts like a two-edged sword. Offense and defense you got the offense down great how about the defense that's where they'll get you they will lie about you they will say whatever they're going to say about you and the bottom line is you know what have a good day that's just the way it is then the next one praying always you know in the Gulf War in 1990 we had a great general then. 
We don't have many generals today that don't like him. He probably was the last of a dying breed. His name was General Schwarzkopf. Storm and Norman. Norman Schwarzkopf, I knew her to him when he was in Vietnam as a company commander. He was a captain back in 1968 and 69. Incredible guy. He come up through the manks, come through the military, and he was a he was an old bullcrap. So he was a lifer all the way through. He didn't he wasn't he didn't play well to politics, and uh, he got into the Gulf War. I'll tell you what, that war lasted what four or five days, and he put a great plan together. I remember one time CNN asked him after after they kicked Saddam all the way back across the desert. They said what he thought of Saddam Hussein, and he said, well, he said I'll tell you. He said, we just kicked his rear end all the way across the desert. We killed 800,000 of his troops. We captured another 400,000. We just about decimated everything. His, 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 his great elite guard is wiped out and, and just blown to pieces. And he said, we had a quarter of death. When they tried to escape, we just strafed them with A-10s and just killed about another 100,000 of them. He said, other than that, he's one of the greatest military minds i ever met in my life. <laughs> you know how they did it? You know what his strategy was? That war was over in the first 15 minutes. Remember the night, the big picture on CNN when the tracers started going up in Baghdad and boy, it lit up the sky. Everybody remembers that picture. You know how they won that war in such short a time? They dropped special forces and SEAL teams in there long before they ever made the advance. And those SEAL teams had marked and probably many of them were in the desert that night with laser to hold them on those targets. And they, they, they designated every, every, uh, every communication center that they had. Every place where anybody could talk to anybody, they knew where it was. And boy, the first 15 minutes, they all went out just like that. Once they took their communication down, the war was over. They had no way of communicating their orders up to the front to the back. And nobody to tell anybody what they needed and what their situation was. It was absolutely over. Prayer is your line of communication. You don't have it, this battle's over before you get started. It's your communications with headquarters. It's your ability to communicate with God and talk to God and get what God has for you. Bible says pray without ceasing. Pray always, it says here. You notice when you come down here, <clears throat> there's armor for every part of your body except your knees and your back. It says pray without ceasing, but there's no armor on your knees. And there's no armor for the back. You got everything for the front. You got the helmet. You got the sword. You got the, but there's no, no armor for the back. You know why that is? Because God's people never to be in retreat. Don't show them your back. Let them see the blood in your eyes from the front. And you're always to be on your knees. This battle's fought on your knees. No armor for the knees. This battle's fought on your knees. Praying always. And then we come to the last part. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 1971. Rule number one, Mel Shabaka. I can hear it when I close my eyes, just like I was there. How many times I've heard him yell it. How many times I've heard him scream it. How many times it was burned into my brain. God never sends green troops into combat. Learn the book, he'd say. Learn the offense. Learn the defense. God never, never sends green troops into combat. He never sends conscientious objectors into the combat zone. God is looking for men and women who will get their feet shod with the preparation, the preparation, the preparation. Of the gospel of peace. You got to have running shoes. You got to have work shoes. But you got to have combat boots. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And its final analysis this is this most simple concept. This church is a training ground. Plain and simple. And plain and simple, some make it and some don't. 
I, I, I always say to the new people, you know, very frankly, you ought to look at this thing long before you get into it because I'll tell you what, why would you want to go through the abuse of what you have to go through every week to sit under this if you don't have an appetite for it? If you're not military-minded in a spiritual sense and you don't love the smell of napalm in the morning and the sting of battle in your face, you're in a wrong place. You're in a wrong place. If you want a women's tea someplace or you want a, a cupcake ministry or a ho-host <laughs> or a Twinkie ministry, this is not the place for you. I'm here to teach you how to learn the balance. I'm here to teach you the balance of offensive and defensive warfare. I'm here to take you that weapon and show you how to use it. I'm here to show you how to use the offense and use the defense, how to use the breastplate, how to use the shield of faith. I'm here to tell you how to fight this battle. So for one purpose, and one purpose only, so you can take a stand. Some of you have never stood for anything in your life except things that are wrong. feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You need to take advantage of every opportunity to learn every aspect of this ministry to have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, getting prepared. You need to have your running shoes. You need to realize there's an urgency of what we've got to do and there's a race you have to run. You need to realize that we're in a warfare and you need to have combat boots because we're in a battle and we're in a warfare and you need to have work boots with steel toes because there's a work to be done and people are going to take cheap shots at you every time to try to destroy your credibility and your spirit. So what? I think of that great verse back in, back in the Old Testament when Christ, uh, one of those things that just is in there that if you don't know what you're looking for, you just pass over it a million times. But it's the picture of Christ when he's standing looking into the spirit world on the cross of Calvary. And I don't know what you know about the cross of Calvary, but boy, that's where the two seeds bang together, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And boy, as he's standing right there, and the Bible says that Jesus says, he, he looks into that spirit world, and here's what he says. He says, whom is my adversary? He was talking to? He's talking to the devil. The devil had him betrayed. The devil sold him out. The devil got everybody uh, infiltrated the, tw uh, the 12 with, a, with, a, with an imposter for the purpose of, of stabbing him in the back and doing all the things that he did. Now he's on the cross. He's hanging there. And the devil comes to him to get him to quit. And you know what his attitude was? His attitude was, here I am. You forgot to read. My, my legs are like marble. I ain't moving an inch. And he looks right into that spirit world to a face of another spiritual being. And nobody saw it. All anybody sees, all anybody sees is Jesus Christ dying on a cross, agony for you and for me. But when you look into that mind, into that spirit world, you see that he's facing another being in the other spirit world, his majesty the devil. And he's looking face to face and he says to him on the cross in the worst time of his life before he dies, he says, as Isaiah, I think it's 50, says, whom is mine adversary? Let him come unto me. Whom is my adversary? Let him come here. I'm holding my ground. You want a part of me? Come and get it. Whom is my adversary? The Bible says he put his face like a flint. And he despised the shame. He despised the beating. And he despised all that they did for him. You know why? Because he realized that he came down for one reason. And it wasn't to die for your sins and for mine. He came down for one reason. And it wasn't really the restoration of the nation of Israel. He came down for one reason. And that was to take a stand in front of the devil. We need to stand. We need to take a stand. We need to take a stand. Learn every aspect of the ministry, offense and defense. Get the Bible down. Learn just not only the training, but get the exper expertise of working with people. Get the education that goes along with it. God has a job for you, and this is the place to get it done. But you need to get your shoes on your feet, staff in your hand, eat it in haste, 
then you need to get the armor on, and now you need to get your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I'm going to give you two verses in closing, and you need to make these your verses because they're great verses. And I leave you with this. First one's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. Pick it up in verse 19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Amen. Having this seal, be the seal of the Holy Spirit, the Lord knoweth them that are His, and every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Boy, that's a good verse. You name the name of Christ, then why are you smoking and drinking? You name the name of Christ, going to church, talking about how great it is, the great I am, why are you doing the things of the world doing? Why don't you depart from the iniquity like the Bible says? But in a great house, here's why, but in a great house, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Now here it comes, here it comes. You want to stand, you want to get your feet shod, you want to get where you need to be, here it is. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, meet for the master's use, and prepared for every good work. Look at those things, four things. If a man purge himself from these, the vessels of dishonor, those that talk about Christ but don't depart from iniquity, those that talk about naming of Christ but still have the things of the world in their life, purge yourself from these vessels of dishonor. If a man will purge himself from these, look at it, one, he'll be a vessel of honor, two, sanctified, that's set apart, three, meat for the, for the master's use. Meat, like help meat. See that thing? Like Adam and Eve, she was a help meat. You help meet the need that God wants you to do, like we talked about. And then the last one, and prepared unto every good work. Now, here's the second verse, and you'll want to take this one home with you. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1. Here it is. Here's the secret. Here's the key. I could have saved, I could have just told you this verse this morning and we could have went home an hour and a half ago. But if I wouldn't have explained what I've explained, the verse wouldn't mean anything to it. Now it'll have a whole new light for you. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You see, the first, when you got saved, you got your shoes on your feet. Once you stay through this thing and you start to grow, now God's got a job for you to do. You got to get those feet shod with the preparation. The preparation. You get trained. You get taught. Then you get educated. Look what it says. Proverbs 16.1 The preparation of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. See that thing? You work at your heart and prepare your heart. You prepare your heart for the things of God. You prepare your heart to take a stand. You prepare your heart to separate yourself from the world. You prepare your heart that when somebody, even if it's your friend, does something wrong, you have the ability and the steel in your backbone to say, you know what, that wasn't right. You prepare your heart. You prepare your heart with the Bible. You prepare your heart with, for the Lord. You prepare the heart. You keep your heart right. You get into that book. You have the right motive. You do it for the right motive. You realize that it's offensive and defensive, and you do everything you do to prepare your heart for the ministry. You do your part, and then when it's time for you to speak, God takes your tongue based on what you prepared and tells you what to say. You see, I can't get to the second one. All I can do is help you prepare your heart. And I do it just like they do paratroopers down at Fort Benning, Fort Bragg. I do it the way soldiers are supposed to be doing. If you don't like it, find someplace else to go. I don't know what to tell you. You're not going to like it here. 
Somebody said four or five years ago when I was preaching someplace, he says, I didn't like what you said this morning. I said, well, you stick around here, you're going to like it less before I get through. <laughs> I'm not here to, to run a popularity contest. I'm not here so you'll like me or love me, though I hope you do. I'm not here to make your friends and influence enemies. I'm here for one purpose, and that is to teach, take every man and every woman who's got the steel in their backbone, the gravel in their gut, and he can stand up and have the ability to take a stand for God and then to train you in an offensive and a defensive warfare. Get your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. My God, people, in any day now, Jesus Christ is coming back. Do you really want to face him without ever making your stand? Well, that's what it's about. Think about it. That's what it's about. That's the only reason we're here. It'll never be a nice day and a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. You'll never leave here with a nice, warm feeling and glow. If you don't leave here every Sunday or every Thursday night not challenged and something in your life, then I'm not doing my job. And if you don't like that kind of ministry, hey, you know what? There's church in every street corner. Just start working the list. I'm not interested in making you happy or patronizing you. I'm not interested in you liking me. I'm interested in preaching the truth and taking in these last days some young men and some young ladies that'll stand for something that's right. Every head bowed and every eye closed.